Well, good morning, beloved. It is my pleasure and honor to come before you this morning and open the word of truth and see what it has to say for us. Thank you for those that maybe arrived a little late and had to trek a long way in this morning, unknowing that there was an activity going on in town. But regardless of that, we will meet and explain and look at the Word of God. It was just a few months ago when my wife and I were in Washington, D.C., uh, we went to the Air and Space Museum. And it's just a fascinating place to go to. And the first exhibit that you come to when you walk in the door is a beautiful display explaining the Wright brothers, Orville and Wilbur Wright, and what they accomplished. They were two bicycle um, salesmen from Ohio that stood on the shoulders of many people that had come before them and just put two and two together and came up with the design and the right way of making manned flight for the first time in history. That was 1903. On Tuesday of this week will be the 54th anniversary of when Neil Armstrong set foot on our lunar surface. If you were old enough at the time, you remember watching that black and white TV set and listening to Walter Cronkite and seeing that very fuzzy, staticky picture when he stepped foot on the lunar surface. 66 years between Orville Wright and Neil Armstrong. Incredible! That happened within the lifespan of my grandfather. He saw those events take place. When you stop and think about where we've come in just the last hundred years, I think it's a worthwhile question. What are you doing spending your time looking at ancient literature? What can you possibly hope to glean from things that were written centuries, if not millennia, ago? Well, we are going to be doing that this morning. And we do value, as I'm sure all of you here do, that there is great wisdom, insight, and knowledge to be gained from a study of ancient literature when it comes in the form of God's revelation to us. So I invite you this morning to turn to Psalm 91. And we're going to read this psalm together and then look at some of its details and hopefully leave encouraged and greatly um, fortified. Psalm 91. Read along with me, please. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near to you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, and the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. 
Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be to him, in, I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Well, I know what you're thinking as we read that. You're saying, well, why didn't we talk about this psalm back in January of 2020? It might have saved us a whole lot of problems with this thing called COVID. Uh, it's kind of addressed in there if you didn't see it. We're going to look at that a little bit more in detail. There is an elephant in the room, and I want to first start out my outline this morning by addressing it because it's an important one to understand. The first point is we need to process the problem. If you did a Google search or a Bing search of Psalm 91, your computer screen would be immediately loaded with references and links to a number of, of authors and speakers and writers, and most of them will be of the prosperity persuasion. They would be kind of in the word of faith movement, if you're familiar with that. They would be in the name it and claim it crowd. For this passage, this psalm, is one of the proof texts that they use constantly, continually, to prove that God, God's desire for his chosen people, us, is to prosper us, to keep us from harm, to keep us from disease. He wants wealth and, well, and, and, and health and prosperity, and this is one of the places that is referred to. So one is, I think appropriate to ask the question, well, is it true? Is it true? Is it legitimate? There are probably two very distinct perspectives that people have when they come to this psalm. One is perplexity, and one is presumption. Asking those questions, well, is it true? Are these unconditional promises that we can stand on and claim and benefit from? Or is it something other than that? Was there a group of people somewhere during this last pandemic that we all went through? Was there an enclave of believers that somehow escaped the ravages of COVID? Are there some that claimed the promises in this psalm and could live through the pandemic scot-free? If there are, I don't know about them. Maybe there were. I read recently about a young couple, a British couple, in the 1930s, John and Betty Stamm, they met each other, and they both had the conviction placed upon them by God to be missionaries. And as they processed this conviction, they started to prepare to be missionaries to China. They went through much laborious language studies and prepared to go, were married, and arrived in China, had their first child when they were there. While the church that they were working in has, was just starting to form and to prosper, a group of communist young people infiltrated their church one Sunday morning and grabbed John and Betty Stam, disrobed them from their clothes, put them in their undergarments, dragged them through the city's main street to a place where they were both beheaded. Their son, which was lying on their bed at home was sought 
And an old Christian man that was part of their church stood forward and said, let me die in his place. And this group of students spared their son. Were they somehow in error? Did they not know the promises of Psalm, 50, Psalm 91? Could they have claimed protection, divine protection, and possibly saved had their lives been saved? It's a legitimate question. The audience we need to discover of this original psalm was the children of Israel. We don't know who the author was. It may have been a priest after the exiles that were returning to Jerusalem from Babylon. Maybe they were in need of reminder again of some of the promises that God had given to them, and they were encouraging obedience and loyalty and faithfulness. For if one looks at the history of Israel, some of the ideas in this psalm will immediately come to mind. You'll remember that when the nation was under bondage and under slavery in Egypt, God rose up a leader called Moses and Aaron, and he instructed them, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And Aaron and Moses went before Pharaoh and through a series of plagues, ultimately released the slaves that were held in Egypt. Nine of the ten plagues... Israel had no responsibility for. They were asked to do nothing. In fact, Goshen, the part of the Delta Nile where they lived, was absolutely spared the ravages of these plagues. They were a little enclave. They were a protected group. Can you imagine when hail is falling on the entire country, except Goshen? Locusts, flies, gnats, darkness. There's Goshen under the light. The people were spared the ravages of the plagues, except the last one. They were asked to do something. The angel of death was to pass over and kill the firstborn of all born animals, livestock, families. And if they were to sacrifice a lamb and put its blood on their doorposts, the angel would pass over them. That was their only responsibility. And they did that, and they were released. Fast forward to Sinai. Moses is now receiving some of the law of God. And part of that law, um, he explained. In Exodus chapter 23, I want to read a few verses to kind of give a context for this, this psalm. Exodus 23, verse 20. This is Moses speaking. God speaking through Moses. He says, Behold, I will send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice and do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you the Amorites and the Hittites and the Pezites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will blot them out, and you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall, utter, shall utterly overflow them, overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. 
You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None of you shall miscarry or be barren in your land, and I will fulfill the number of your days, and I will send my terror before you, and I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all of your enemies turn their backs to you. So here we see, again, reflected some of the things that we saw in Psalm 91 promised to the nation of Israel. But it was a conditional promise at this point. They came to Sinai, they received God's law, and the, the blessing that came from the law was conditioned upon their faithfulness and obedience and their loyalty to the law. And therefore, God promised them that he would bless their water, with the work of their hands, Women would not miscarry. There would be no infertility. Incredible promises that were given to these people. And they received them. In fact, there were probably eight or nine different passages in the Old Testament that talk about these same promises given to the nation. And I would encourage your study of those if you're so inclined. So these are repeated eight or nine times. And they are conditional. They were conditioned upon the people's faithfulness and loyalty. In Psalm 91, again, let me draw your attention to a few things. Who do these promises apply to? In the context of Psalm 91, right away in verse 1, he who dwells with the Most High. Verse 2, those who trust in Jehovah. Verse 9, you have made Yahweh your dwelling place. Verse 14, because he who holds fast to me Verse 14, he knows my name. So there's the context of these blessings. It's talked about someone who intentionally, with, with foresight, makes God their refuge, who dwells, is at home, living with Jehovah. They are, are face to face, and they know each other. They know my... There's a relationship established here. It's just not an unconditional promise given to a no-name people. It's somebody who is face-forward, looking directly at God Almighty. It's a conditional blessing. Let me read a passage from Exodus, chapter 23. Nope, I did that already. Deuteronomy is my next passage. Deuteronomy 28. Verses 58 through 63. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting. And he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid. And they shall cling to you. Every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And as the Lord took delight in doing good to you and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Ugh. 
How many of the health, wealth, and prosperity preachers that love to go to Psalm 91 and extol the beauty and the wonder and the magnificent of the blessings fail to talk about the curses that come from disobedience? It's a two-sided coin. They are one and the same. They cannot, you cannot accept one without the other. They must be taken together. Again, in Psalm 91, verse 20, pay careful attention. These are conditional blessings. Verse 21, do all that he says. Verse 21, do not rebel. Verse 24, do not worship foreign gods. Serve God only. So one has to ask the legitimate question. Well, what was God's purpose then in the Old Testament with these conditional blessings? Incredible, wonderful, you. Unconditioned, I mean, very widespread blessings of prosperity and health and cursings for disobedience. What was God's purpose in doing that? If we read accurately the book of Romans, the first few chapters, as Paul is referring back to the Old Testament law, he reveals the fact that God established and gave the law for a couple of purposes. One, to reveal his own glory, to reveal who he was, his righteousness and his holiness. And secondly, he was, it was given to reveal the folly of human merit, of human effort. We can't do it. We can't do what the law requires. We can't live up to it. We can never get there. Because of the folly of human effort, right from Genesis, beginning in Genesis, God always throughout history, provided relief, provided salvation, provided a way to deal with our human inability. When he cast Adam and Eve out of the garden because of their rebellion, he clothed them in animal skins. There had to have been a sacrifice performed. Right from Genesis 3, God is instituting sacrificial systems. Again, the Passover, which we talked about in Exodus, was a beautiful symbol. It was a picture. It was a foretelling of the coming Lamb of God that would die in our place on the cross, and his blood would cover our sins. The whole sacrificial system, remember from our study of the book of Hebrews, was a shadow, was a, was a, a picture of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. It is my proposition to you this morning that Psalm 91, yes, it is a reminder to the people returning from exile of the blessings that God promised. It is ultimately a picture of Jesus Christ. For these promises and these magnificent blessings are only possible in their fullest sense in the person of Jesus Christ. That leads us into my second point. Now that the problem has kind of been identified and processed, let's look at the promise. How do we procure the promise? How can we attain the promise? Are these promises for us? Are these promises, do we, are we included in Psalm 91? You're thinking, oh, here you go. You're going to spiritualize this text, aren't you? You're going to take something that it says and tell me that it says something else. Well, isn't that the nature of poetry? 
We looked at Psalm 23. Pastor Nate led us in this several weeks ago. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me to lie in green pastures. You think that's literal? Are you going to, this afternoon at the Venatchis, find a pasture in their backyard and just go and lie in it because it's green and that's where God leads you? That's not what it means, literally. It's a beautiful, poetic language that means something else. I think Psalm 91 is very similar to that. It's beautiful poetry, but follow me. I believe it reveals Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. A fowler is a, a bird hunter. A hunter. A snare is a trap. Either a wire trap, possibly a cage. It is symbolic of death. He will deliver you from death. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet Shall he live? John eleven twenty five. Verse 3 also talks about he will deliver us from the deadly pestilence. Pestilence is a word. It's a key word in the Old Testament. If you ever see it, it is always referring to God's judgment on sin and unbelief. God's pestilence. He will deliver us from God's judgment of sin and unbelief. References, if you want to look up to substantiate that, Ezekiel 7.15, 1 Chronicles 21.14, Jeremiah 43.11. Pestilence is always associated with God's judgment. Again, John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. We are delivered from death because of Jesus. We are delivered from God's judgment because of Jesus. Verse 4, he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. This is a very, very familiar Old Testament image. No, God is not a big chicken. Some associate that. It's a figure of speech. He will bear us on his wings. He will cover us with his wings as a hen does its chicks. Jesus, looking out over Jerusalem, Matthew 23, 37. O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. That is a not-so-subtle claim to deity. Nobody else, no prophet ever said, Oh, I wish I would gather my children like a hen. Jesus did, because it was referring back to this picture of God in the Old Testament of covering, protecting, caring for his followers. Verse 4b, his faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. A buckler is a small handheld shield. Sometimes a shield, remember David and Goliath? Goliath came out to fight and he had a shield bearer. His shield was so large that there was another person behind it that carried his shield in front of the fighter. And if Goliath had a small little buckler in his hand, it was a hand, handheld shield. That's the image here. But why is faithfulness required? <laughs> Again, because of human inability? If there is ever a beautiful picture of Jesus fulfilling this, it was Paul's advice to Timothy. 
2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, Paul said, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Of course, the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of Jehovah is something we absolutely have to depend upon because we can't do it. Verse 5, you will not fear the terror of the night. Night darkness, again, pictures, illustrations, figures of speech throughout the Old Testament referring to pictures of evil, sin, rebellion, and wickedness. He will deliver us from the terror of the night. Revelation 21, as John envisions the new heavens and the new earth, he says, in the new Jerusalem, in the new earth, there will be no night. Why? Because the radiance of the sun will be our light. Again, a picture. There's no evil, no wickedness, no rebellion, no sin in our future, the terrors of the night. Or the arrows that fly by day. Verse 5b, arrows that fly by day. Again, an offensive enemy weapon, an arrow. Paul says, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The shield of faith. Faith in what? Faith in human ability? No. No. Faith in Jesus Christ. That's the basis of our salvation. Verse 6, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Again, vivid pictures of destruction and pestilence God's judgment. How are we saved from God's judgment? Colossians 1.13. He, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. It's a beautiful picture of our salvation. Verse 7 and 8. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near to you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. The kingdom of God is not a democracy. It doesn't depend on majority rule. He doesn't take votes to see what policy will be enacted. One, yes, one amongst a thousand or ten thousand can receive God's salvation and blessing. What is the recompense of the wicked? It's a picture of what is the inevitable result of an unrepentant, unbelief heart, and that is eternal separation from God. Paul says in Philippians 3, 18 and 19, for many walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. The recompense of the wicked. Verses 9, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, nor plague come near your tent. God initiated a thing called the tabernacle, and that was transferred to the temple. Within the tabernacle, when when the people were wandering in the Sinai Desert for 40 years, they had this tabernacle. And Solomon later took the same plan and made the temple in Jerusalem. 
Within the temple, within the tabernacle, was a very special, special inner chamber called the Holy of Holies. It was surrounded by a fabric, and in the temple it was surrounded by a curtain, and it was symbolizing the presence, the dwelling place of God Almighty. It was only visited once a year by the high priest after a very special series of cleansings and, and offerings and sacrifices. He entered once a year. It symbolically was where God dwelled. It's where his presence inhabited. And they moved it from place to place so that God's presence went with them. And when it was constructed in the temple, God's presence was there in the holy of holies. When Jesus died on the cross, you remember the, tape, the, the veil that separated people from the holy of holies was ripped from top to bottom. The writer of Hebrews looks at that and gives the spiritual meaning. He says, we who have fled to Jesus for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this same and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. In there, no evil. God's presence excludes evil, excludes the plague, which are symbolic symbols of the thing that God detests. But does it mean more than that? Doesn't it mean that we are saved from physical harm and ills here and now? Are there, is the Christian saved from those things? Listen to Spurgeon's comment on this psalm. He says, It is impossible that any ill should happen to the man that is beloved of the Lord. The most crushing calamities can only shorten his journey and hasten his reward. Ill to him is not ill, but only good in a mysterious form. Losses enrich him. Sickness is his medicine. Reproach is his honor. Death is his gain. No evil in the strict sense of the word can happen to him, for everything is overruled for good. Happy is he who, is, who in such a case is secured when others are in peril. He lives when others die. Someone once said that the Christian is immortal until his work is done. Do you believe that? I don't mean that you can jump out of an airplane without a parachute. To prove it. But the Christian is immortal until his work is done. There's a boldness that we can approach life with. There's a security that we have. There is a peace of understanding of how God's strength and power and omniscience and sovereignty can control our destiny as well as our life here and now. Verse 11 and 12 goes on. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot on a stone. I'm sure you're recalling when Jesus was tempted, Matthew 4, 
He was led up by Satan to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem and symbolically given the authority to throw himself off because Satan quoted this verse from Psalm 91. Jesus, your angels will be given charge concerning you. They will not let your foot strike that stone and be hurt. He was tempting Jesus. Remember Jesus' reply, quoted from Deuteronomy. Ah, you shouldn't test the Lord your God. Do not test the Lord your God. But there's something about the angelic forces here that I don't want us to necessarily miss. We looked at angels in Hebrews, remember? Pastor Nate did a whole beautiful morning on angels. In chapter 1, verse 14, we are told that angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. We're also instructed not to make too much of angels, for if our attention gets distracted from the real source and focus of our worship, then we're in error. But angels have a very important role to play. Jesus, in Matthew 13, explains a parable 36 through 43. He left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us this parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the son of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send angels, and they will gather out his kingdom, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Who, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. There is an important purpose and plan for angels in our future and in the future of God's kingdom and his work. Verse 13, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Again, the serpent from Genesis on has been a symbol of Satan and of his kingdom and of his power. Peter in 1 Peter 5.8 says, Our enemy, the adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Here, these pictures of these animals and Jesus' authority because Jesus was the fulfillment of the curse given to the serpent in Genesis that you will nip this Messiah on the ankle, but he will crush your head with his heel. Jesus fulfilled that promise when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. So we see in this beautiful psalm that the promises of protection and provision, deliverance, prosperity of health and life are complete and all-encompassing, but they are fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You might ask, how is it that somebody could look at this psalm and come to some very completely different conclusions than what you are telling us? Well, that's a good question. You may recall a few years ago, somebody wrote a book, rather tongue-in-cheek, a theological look at cats and dogs. 
And he makes this point. From a dog's perspective, this is what goes through his mind. My master is happy to see me. He loves to spend time with me. My master plays with me. My master feeds me. He gives me treats. My master cares for me, protects me. He scratches me. He pets me. He combs me. He talks to me. A dog says, I think my master is God. A cat, on the other hand, has a different perspective. A cat says, you know, my master is happy to see me. My master is happy to spend time with me. My master plays with me. My master feeds me, gives me treats. My master cares for me, protects me, scratches me, pets me, combs me, talks to me. A cat says, I think that I am God. Sorry, cat lovers. <laughs> I want to encourage all of us to become dogs. <laughs> to realize that when we look at the magnificent blessings and providence and protections that we get from God Almighty through our Savior Jesus Christ, that we don't become inward and go, demanding, or we become worthy of that which we have received, for we are not. The Westminster Confession starts with the question, what is the chief end of man? Answers it by, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, not the reverse. Our first end in life is to glorify God. Lastly, as we are, never believe a preacher when he says lastly, okay? Because it always goes on. Lastly, the third point, proclaim the provider. Proclaim the provider. After we've processed the problem, after we can know how to procure the promise, let's proclaim the provider, verses 14 through 16. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. I will. I will. Six important, significant, overwhelming I wills to end this psalm. I will, says God Almighty, I will accomplish these things. I will do these things. There is a beautiful parallel in Jesus' ministry when he comes to John 17 in his high priestly prayer. Look at, as we read this, look at the comparisons. Remember those six I wills from Psalm 91, and look at them be repeated in Jesus' high priestly prayer of what he is covenanting with his followers to do. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to those to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given to me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I, am, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given to me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given to me, and I have guarded them, and not one of them have been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them from the evil one, that they are not of this world. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Did you see it? Did you catch some of the parallels there? Jesus is saying almost the same things. He is saying, I want to give. I want to protect. I want to give life. I want to serve. I want to rescue. I want to answer. I want to deliver my followers. Proclaim proclaim the provider. The provider of life is God and his son, Jesus Christ. And when the offer of protection and providence and health is offered, receive Jesus. Receive Jesus. That is our key to understanding Psalm 91. God promised from Adam and Eve through Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David that a coming Messiah was, would to come, a coming sacrifice that would be once and for all sufficient for your sin. I will provide that, says God. If you run... If you go out to our wash, beautiful Washington coast and spend some time on the beach, and if you're walking on a sunny day and all of a sudden hear the tsunami alarm, you realize that you're in a place of danger. You have a couple of options. Oh, you passed a beach hut a while back. You could run back there and hope that that beach hut would provide enough protection for you for the coming tsunami. Or... You could heed the tsunami evacuation signs that you passed on the way to the coast and follow them to high ground where you will be protected and secured and provided for. Same in the spiritual sense. The tsunami alarm has gone off. We are incapable of pleasing God. We can't keep his law. We can't keep the 
letter that he has asked us to keep. But he has provided a firm evacuation route. Firm. Betty Stam, the wife of the, the missionary couple that I referred to in the beginning, a few weeks before their death, wrote this beautiful poem. She said, Afraid? Afraid of what? To feel the Spirit's glad release? To pass from pain to perfect peace? Afraid of what? Afraid to see the Savior's face, to hear his welcome and trace the glory gleams from wounds of grace? Afraid of that? Afraid of what? A flash, a crash, a pierced heart, darkness, light, oh heaven's art, a wound of his, a counterpart. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? To do by death what life could not, to baptize with blood a stony plot till souls should blossom from the spot? Afraid of that? I trust this morning that it is well with your soul. I trust this morning, come whatever life gives us, your future is secure, your future is held, your future is provided for, the glorious of his everlasting light, the elimination of evil and darkness and wickedness and unbelief will be set aside forever. Your future is secure. This life might not be, but we hold it temporarily. We hold it fleeting, as Bill talked about last week from Psalm 90. Life is fleeting. It's a vapor. It vanishes very quickly. Eternity is a long time. I trust it is well with your soul this morning. If not, run to Jesus. Run to him with your sin. Exchange your sin and his wrath, God's wrath for God's salvation, which is offered. Let's pray together. God, our Father, I pray this morning that we could see you more clearly than we could when we woke up. I pray that our eyes could be opened to see the beauty of your providence and your provision and the salvation that you have given us in Jesus Christ. I pray that our hearts would be secure, that our souls would be held secure for eternity's sake, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.